0: Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I am your host, Maddie Moon, and we have an excellent, excellent show for today. I have been dying to get this guest on the podcast for months now. I have had her book on my reading list for years. Finally read it this past year, and I was blown away. I can't believe that I didn't read it sooner. I was a little bit mad at myself, but also compassionate. But I finally got around to reading it, and it was one of the best books I've read in a long time. Today, we have on the show Kirsten Grise talking about her book, Mirror, Mirror Off the Wall, How I Learned to Love My Body by Not Looking at It for a Year. Yes, that's right. Kirsten did not look at her body for an entire year. Think about all the times you walk past reflective surfaces, your computer, your toaster, shopping windows, shopping malls, um, buildings, the rearview mirror in your car you know, all those different things. How many times a day do you check to see if you have food in your teeth? When you wake up, do you check to see if your makeup was smudged from the night before? Do you always worry about if your hair is out of place? Do you check your little pocket mirror in your purse and then you open the mirror in your car and then you walk into the mirror in the bathroom? They're everywhere. Kirsten managed to go an entire year without looking at her body even during her um, wedding preparations. So needless to say, this girl blew me away. Um, It's these kind of people that make real changes in our world, changes that need to be made. So we have her on the show today. She has a PhD, and her research broadly explores the relationship between physical appearance and social inequality, with specialized expertise in labor market inequality, sociology of culture, and how body size, in particular, intersects with other markers of difference. So that episode is about to come on up. I am so excited to talk about it, but first we have our review of the week. This one is from Podcast Lover 66, and we have five stars. Maddie is an inspiration. Not only is Maddie herself truly inspiring, but the guests she invites on her show have amazing insight into the world of fitness and health. Whether you struggle with body image issues, disordered eating, or exercise addiction, this podcast is for you. Thank you for everything you do, Maddie. Thank you so much. That is my goal with this show. I want to tackle these body image issues and I have a feeling that for anyone that is interested in that, they're gonna love this episode today. And I also, real quickly, want to say, you guys, we have 103,618 downloads as of right now. 103,618! Oh my gosh, I can't believe I made it to this day. I wanted to plan some kind of big hoopla and party where you know i have a webcam going on there's balloons and i throw some confetti in the air and uh that didn't really work out but instead i think this interview will serve as a great uh, milestone marker for surpassing the 100,000 download mark and with that i think it's time to go ahead and get started welcome to the mind body musings podcast in your book, you give a little bit of detail that you had an eating disorder. And I'm really Mm -hmm. curious about how you came up with this idea of living without mirrors for a year and combining that with your previous experience of having an eating disorder. Like, just dive in and give us some insight on how you even got to where you
1: are today. No problem. I mean, that's a long story, but to be, you know, more specific to the case of why I went without mirrors Really, the fact that I um, had recovered from anorexia um, was so intimately tied with the reason I even thought about going without mirrors. Um, basically, in the final years of um, high school and then college, I was battling, you know, first I guess textbook anorexia and then the muddled mess of. Um, eating disorder is not otherwise specified that most of us land in when we're trying to recover or trying to figure out um, how to take care of ourselves. Um, and recovering for that, you know, required the usual amount of a lot of therapy, a lot of soul searching, um, medication. And, um, and in the process, you know, I also had to make some big changes in my life. Um, simply, you know, for example, I was working in the fashion industry, and it turns out that as much as I love fashion – It's very difficult to spend so many of my working hours um, in a realm that's very focused on appearance, et cetera. So I made all these changes. Um, I was in a really good place. It, It had been, you know, eight years, nine years. Um, since I had really been symptomatic, um, I was a, at the time a graduate student in sociology at UCLA. I was doing research on body image. I was volunteering um, with this great organization called About Face that does media literacy workshops with young women. I seemingly was just in a point in my life where the eating disorder stuff was really just in the, in the background um, or buried, I should say, um and I'd even, you know, recently been engaged, great guy, very body positive. Everything I thought um would be required for me to be just all set to have that eating disorder stuff be completely in the past. Um and then when I when we got engaged, um that that pressure that you feel as a bride or at least that I felt as a bride where um, it's suddenly was normal for everyone to assume that you were going to be, you know, losing a few pounds or trying, you know, highlighting your hair and getting a tan and going to the gym. Um, That all kind of came swooping in, um, especially while I was shopping for wedding dresses. Um, Basically, I started feeling like I had to find the perfect dress, you know, I'm still very into fashion and my research in sociology is often linked to fashion and I just had this idea in my head that I had to have the most perfect dress and that um, my body needed to, you know, be part of that package and if anyone, you know, listening to this has been um, to a bridal Um, a bridal shop and tried on wedding dresses, you know that it's not always exactly what you see in the movies where moms and daughters are bonding and crying and drinking champagne and knowing exactly when the dress is the one. And it was throughout that process that I started to feel really frustrated by being triggered by all of this. Um, And after a particularly long day of trying on dresses with my mom, um, I was sick of seeing myself in the mirror, I was sick of being critical, and I just thought to myself, you know, I'm not, exact, I'm not planning on calling off the wedding, I'm really looking forward to this wedding, but how can I find a project or a mindset that will be powerful enough to, be, to push back against this really powerful wedding industry? And I came up with the idea to go without mirrors, um, and something about it just clicked, And I talked to my mom and my husband and both of them thought it was a good idea. Weird, but I'm weird. Um, And that was that. And I gave it a a start.
0: Wow. Oh my gosh. Okay, so so many questions like pop up when I was reading your book about how in the world did you go about doing this? Um, But first of all, I just want to go back to the pressures of the wedding industry. And I I have never gone through an engagement or wedding or anything. So all I know is the movies and (laughs) um, the TV shows on TLC about, what's that show it's like picking out the perfect wedding oh, dress um, oh god uh,
1: something the dress I don't yeah,
0: know um say yes to the dress I think say yes to the dress yes okay so is there a problem with this idea do you do you think there's a problem with this idea that you know it's when it's the one it's like the dress is like a man like you just know when it's the one is there something wrong <laughs> uh, with
1: this idea well I think there's wrong something wrong with both of those ideas frankly mm. um so we'll we'll save it for another conversation about whether or not you're supposed to just instantly know if you're, you know, the person you meet is supposed to be your life partner instantly. But as far as the um the fashion industry goes and um and more specifically the wedding um wedding industrial complex as I've heard it said, I think what's really interesting is, um, as a sociologist who's also interested in fashion and history, understanding that what we consider to be traditions of um, of the wedding and um, wedding planning and bride experience today haven't really been traditions as long as we think, or the root of those traditions aren't the way we don't have the same roots that we associate with them now. So, you know, the perfect example would be, um, you know, brides dressed in white. White is supposed to signify being a virgin. The vast majority of women getting married in America today are not virgins, and yet um, we still celebrate the dress in white. Um, The veil, also kind of a similarly steeped in tradition thing, Um, you know, we're supposed to be revealing ourselves to our husbands for the first time at the altar again, not very common, and even just being walked down the aisle by your father or even parents is this idea that women are property that need to be exchanged from one man to the next. So as a feminist sociologist, you know, I have some insight into this industry and how some of the things that are now called, you know, romantic or tradition um, maybe weren't quite as romantic back in the day. And even though there are traditions now, a lot of the traditions seem to have been held up primarily because um, they end up costing a lot of money. In other words, earning a lot of money for a huge wedding industrial complex. So I won't go too far into this except to say that um, the idea now that um, that we should be spending thousands upon th- tens of thousand dollars, thousands of dollars on the dress, the shoes, the hair, and the makeup is really quite a modern invention and one that is uh, re-emphasized by a wedding industry that knows that the less happy we are with our normal selves, the more money we'll spend to try to look like somebody completely different on that day. Um, And the emphasis on the idea that your wedding is the most important day of your life um, is, you know, up until you have children, which is a whole other gendered issue, it really puts a lot of pressure on women and their families to try to create a wedding experience, um, that somehow encapsulates everything good. Um, and it's just, it's way too much pressure. And when you get down to it, it's not about uh, tradition so much as a business. Um, and that's something that can be helpful to keep a critical lens when someone goes through all of this. Um, and yet, It's not as that we can um, have learn about our culture well and somehow be excused from participating in it, even knowing those things. It can be really triggering to be told all the time that this is the day you're supposed to look your most beautiful. And oh, by the way, in case you forgot, most beautiful means thin and long hair and smiling, perfectly white teeth, et cetera. You know, some brides lose weight. Some brides get um, Invisalign braces all these things just so that one day those photos will be, quote, perfect.
0: Mm -hmm. Wow. That's like all very fascinating coming from um, like the fitness industry and being able to see how many similarities there are within the magazines and the pressure like fitness equals this, your bride equals this. And I've never really even thought about how this same issue is you know, converted into all these different areas, like for brides. And yeah. um, it's it's just really fascinating to hear it from someone who's gone through it and not fallen into it and how you can see clearly um, where the lines are just really blurred.
1: Well, I wouldn't say I didn't fall into it. It's that when I started falling into it, I, you know, thankfully had had enough, um, you know, self-awareness at that point to realize that what I was falling into was turning me um, towards, a past that I knew was dangerous and unhealthy and unhappy. Um, but I don't think that, I think that a lot of brides, even if they don't have, um, e- background of having an eating disorder can be triggered t- toward disordered eating during the bridal process. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of emphasis about, um, quick weight loss that seems, um, you know, it's kind of faux pas now to, to tell someone, oh, you're just going to lose 20 pounds in, you know, 20 days or whatever it is. But the crash dieting industry has still kind of has a hold on the bridal world because as those, you know, as the countdown continues and you have, first you have a year left before your your wedding and then it's six months and then it's three months and then it's one month. And, you know, we know that that weight loss is not, um, it's not easy and it's rarely permanent. Um, but with all this pressure on brides, whether you have a year or you have six weeks, you see women starting these weight loss projects that can get really extreme. I mean, you think about the bridezilla um, stereotype. Well, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of that was simply because these women are so damn hungry.
0: Right. Yeah. So let's um, switch gears a little bit, because I want to talk about your first week of living without mirrors. And correct me if i'm wrong but also reflective
1: surfaces everything
0: reflective
1: yeah. yeah so this wasn't um this project was about for me it was about seeing if changing my environment could help me change my thoughts and my habits so really the difference between a mirror or say um you know my laptop screen which i'm looking at right now and i can actually see my um <laughs> my reflection in there wasn't um Holistically, no real difference between the two. The point was for me to um, to change my habits, not see myself and and find out whether um, taking away those potentially hundreds of moments and minutes every day of looking at myself in the mirror could really shift um, my behaviors and my attitude. So all reflective surfaces were, were out. Um, and really for that first week, what I was um, trying to do was, you know, not giving up cold turkey, but trying to train myself on how to do a few things um, that had previously required mirrors, like putting on some makeup in the morning, brushing my hair, etc. And then to figure out um, how many mirrors or reflective surfaces I would have to avoid on my average um, day going from home to work and back.
0: Okay, so I know that you were um, passing like what were they, like buildings that were reflective yeah. when they were shopping going to work?
1: Jokes. Yeah, yep.
0: shopping. So on those moments, did you just have to look away? You just turned your head?
1: Yeah. Um, you know, at first I had to look away. Um, and I will, you know, people say, how is it possible that you never saw yourself? And, and I'll actually say that throughout the year, even after I had kind of mastered this look away um, instinctively, I saw myself. Every day, you know, I saw a glimpse of myself out of the corner of my eye, um, or if I, you know, bumped into or was about to bump into something reflective. The difference is that I um, trained myself to not look. Um, and the easiest comparison I can give to that is the way that um, most of us have a few times in our life been walking down the street, um, and we see someone walking towards us who we know, but who we don't want to engage with in some way, and. So you see that person immediately recognize who it is and suddenly advert your eyes as though you haven't seen them. Um, And that's pretty much the instinct I had if I ever saw myself in the mirror or in um, my reflection anywhere. So this pop, this question just popped in my head, but
0: there are two different types of um, ways to go about this that I've heard. You know, there's not looking at your body, which is the approach you had in this book, which is avoiding reflective surfaces. And then the other one is loving your body more by looking at it more and by like looking at other bodies that are different shapes and sizes um there's nothing wrong with that approach either of just like one thing that I highly recommend to people is to like touch their body more to meditate and like feel their different body parts and what what do you think are the the what's the biggest difference between the two different types of looking at your body more whenever you know you want to look away because you're not your case but in other people's cases if they're disgusted with their bodies and they just want to look away because they don't like it versus looking away because you do like it and you do
1: want to like it does that make sense absolutely and actually this is one of the things that um i had to tackle when i was thinking about this project because it is very different um you know, we've talked to or I've, I've spoken with professionals who really use mirrors quite a bit in their therapy with um, women and men who have body image issues. And what's interesting is that when we think about body image, there really are two aspects of body image that combine to um, to kind of make the whole picture. And the first one is your feelings about your body or a particular body part in the sense of are you happy about them, are you upset about them, Um, good, bad, um, proud, disgusted, etc. So we have this range of feelings, subjective feelings that we have about our body or particular body parts and that's one level of our body image and the other level of our body image which I argue is actually more important and more powerful to think about is the extent to which we care about those feelings or the extent to which those feelings about our bodies, good or bad, how much of our entire self-esteem or self-image is wrapped around our body and our feelings about how we look. So, for example, and this is kind of an interesting contrast, you know, I, if every little girl in the world, you know, thought she was a three out of ten... Um, in terms of beauty, but none of them cared at all, I would consider that a world with pretty healthy body image. Um, Whereas a lot of um, the talk we hear about how to have good body image or positive body image is all about just convincing ourselves that we're beautiful um, and that we should, even if we don't look anything like what our culture holds up as beautiful, that we still need to find a way, searching our souls and doing meditation and, and getting in touch with our bodies, that we need to find a way to feel beautiful. And I think that both of these things are important. But considering the, again, this like multi-billion dollar beauty industry, which is so invested in making us feel like shit, um, it's it can be a lot more powerful to say, hey, guess what, i um, I want you to feel good about your body. I want you to be satisfied with your body. But if you don't feel like a supermodel, that's no problem. Um, you just have to realize that not looking like a supermodel is is not a huge deal. You know, look around. There are lots of happy and healthy people that find love and have jobs and have hobbies and interests who don't look like supermodels. In fact, the supermodels don't. Um, so this project was less about looking at myself in the mirror and thinking You know, waking up one day and thinking I'm beautiful, um, whereas like a year previously I didn't, um, that's something that I worked on quite a bit when I was younger. What I needed to do, especially in being faced with this wedding industry um, situation, was to decide that what I looked like um, was less important. And that's what avoiding mirrors did for me.
0: Okay, so the goal was more of to not put so much emphasis on beauty <clears throat> instead of trying so hard to make yourself feel pretty.
1: Exactly. Yeah, I think you said that much better than I did.
0: <laughs> okay, that makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, because actually, I don't want to get too off topic, but recently I was talking with someone who, you know, there's a, on when you go on Facebook, there are a lot of the campaigns for people who are not known to be beautiful by the rest of the world because they have some kind of disorder or a uh, a syndrome or something. Or Um, simply just
1: they're average looking.
0: (laughs) Average looking, you know, and they're saying like this person's beautiful in an article and like why they're beautiful. And then like, you know, click like to raise a dollar, you know, to make them feel beautiful. And some people are like, this is amazing. I love this. Like, it's so great. Like, even if it's someone who has had a face, like half their face burned off, they're doing this campaign to raise money to help them by promoting, like, this is, um, sorry, I have a tickle on my throat. Like, this is what beautiful (laughs) is, and instead of doing that, maybe we should focus less on this person is beautiful, this person is beautiful, and making them feel like they need to feel beautiful, and instead focus on what they're, what they can do with their life and who they are as a person.
1: I think a two-pronged approach is more realistic. I mean, certainly it's important for women and girls to develop healthy self-esteem that is not dependent on appearance. Like, mm. even the most stunningly beautiful children, you know, little girls and young women, those those individuals, in fact, are even more vulnerable to major body image issues as they age. Because, you know, if we get very attached to our looks when we're young and, you know, hypothetically beautiful, those are the people who actually are told again and again and again, you're so beautiful, you're so pretty. They are more likely to have a lot of their self-image tied to this idea that they're stunningly beautiful. And guess what? No matter how beautiful you are when you're 14 or 15, when you're 50 or 60 or even 30 um, and you start getting those first wrinkles or your body is um, doesn't respond to you know, your non-exercise junk food eating, um, these are young girls and women that turn into older women that can be very devastated when their looks are no no longer their calling card. Um, so I guess to answer your question about, um, you know, when we try to redefine beauty, I'm very much in favor of redefining beauty to be um, much more broadly construed. And I think actually, you know, real-life examples of of the women we love and interact with on a daily basis, um, do a lot of work to do that. If we if we take the time to notice that the majority of women that we interact with and in respect and love don't look like supermodels, mm-hmm. um, so that's one piece of it. Really broadening, um, not so much redefining, but broadening um, what we see as beautiful um, is important. But again, at the end of the day, even if you feel positively about your looks, if yourself. An image is totally wrapped around your appearance, it's completely fragile to, um, you know, the inevitable passage of aging. Mm-hmm, right.
0: What would you say your biggest challenge was during this year?
1: The biggest challenge? Um, well, I mean, it's kind of obvious. It was actually just really hard to avoid seeing myself. Um, and there were a few times, um, throughout the year maybe two or three I think I write about them in the book where something happened and I just ended up seeing myself um, and actually looking so I had a few um, few like slip ups I guess you could say in the meantime uh, or during the process so I you know the fact that I was very motivated to do this for internal reasons and yet still found it challenging um, says something about it. I think the other piece that I really didn't count on, Um, was finding out how much the time I spent in front of the mirror wasn't just about my looks, but almost um, as though looking in the mirror was being around a friend or an acquaintance. Um, This sounds very strange, but if anyone has, you know, saw themselves in the mirror trying to like Boost their, um, boost their mood right before they go give a talk or do an athletic performance. It's like you're talking to yourself. Um, I think that's a fairly common experience um, for some people, but you don't realize that without it, you can feel kind of discombobulated. Um, and that's something that I experienced that was very c- confusing at first, um, but comforting in the end, because I knew that at some point I would see myself in the mirror again. And what I hoped was at that point, it would be like seeing an old friend instead of Seeing something I needed to critique,
0: mm, right? Yeah, I think I, I. The first thing that comes to my head is I would just be like worried about, like if there's food in my teeth or like, I'm walking around <laughs> with that all day. But I mean, it always like you, know, you can always ask someone. I mean, it's not a big deal.
1: Yeah, I mean that happens <laughs> plenty. But the the truth is, um, and this is the biggest thing I learned, is that. Um, is that the some of the myths that we believe that were, you know, frankly fed um, directly from, you know, makeup ads, for example, like the idea that eyeliner will change your life or, if, you know, if you wear lipstick or don't wear lipstick, it's the difference between how you'll be treated um, is I had to give a lot of those things up. And even if I still wore a little bit of makeup, um, sometimes it was smudged or I had mascara on my nose or my hair was crazy. I had food in my teeth. What have you? Um, but what I found out is that the people I have in my life um, who have always, you know, um, cared about me for who I am not, rather than what I look like, none of th- none of those relationships changed. Um, if anything, they got better because I was more engaged in them and more willing to trust the people who I already loved when they said, "Oh, you look great. You look good enough. Whatever." Um, before the project, I in my head I was literally saying, well, you just love me. So you're just saying that because you love me. And throughout the project, I realized, well, shit, if they love me and they're saying it because they love me, isn't, you know, that good enough in mm-hmm. and of itself. You know, what more am I going for than having people in my life who, who love me? Mm-hmm.
0: There was a point in your book where you were concerned that you were gaining weight. Mm -hmm. And your, I forgot who it was, but they, someone recommended that you get a scale just, you know, to calm your nerves about it. My therapist, yes. Your therapist. And you got a scale and the weight was the same. So you felt Mm -hmm. calm about it. My question for you is what if that number had increased? What if you had seen five,
1: six, seven pounds more? Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really hard to know exactly how I would have reacted. Um, certainly since I'd started the conversation with my therapist, it um, you know, I continued it, going back and saying, hey, my weight was pretty much the exact same. That conversation could have been, hey, I'm not crazy. It was going up. Um, and I'd, I have to say at that point, um, I, I think it's very likely that I would have continued the project as long as I was able to, you know, calmly understand what was going on and get a sense for, you know, was I gaining weight because because um, my body was telling me something or was I gaining weight because, you know, for example, I was, um, you know, not taking care of myself, I guess. Um, so one thing that's interesting, some people who have eating disorders or have recovered from them or even people who haven't find that um, the scale is really triggering. So it's kind of like mirrors, you know, it's not it's not the technology itself. It's how you use it um, or how you feel about it. So for me, um, weighing myself frequently is healthy for me because when I don't weigh myself, I can get these ideas in my head that I'm gaining weight rapidly and, um, and then I can feel like I have to compensate by messing with my food or exercise. And so for me, weighing myself frequently calms those um, you know, eating disordered instincts, I would say. Whereas for other people, um, stepping on the scale causes more obsessing. So like mirrors, it's it's not the mirror that's evil. It's how you use it. It's not the scale that's evil. It's how you use it.
0: Yeah, exactly. Nothing is inherently good or bad. And I have the experience of the scale being a tool that I use to control and harm myself. Like, it w- even today, when I go to the doctor's office, I turn around so I don't see the number. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because I know if it's a good number and it's the same number that I left um, the doctor's office as, you know, five months earlier, I'd be happy. And I don't yeah. want to be like conditionally happy either or sad. So yeah. I have to avoid it. And, you know, it's been several years now since I've looked at it because I don't want that to be
1: a deciding factor for myself because I know I can't I don't use it correctly. Exactly. And for me, the scale, um, it's it's meant something different at different type, times in my life. But at a certain point, I realized that, hey, you know, I'm mostly recovered. But the times when I am finding myself um, panicking or wanting to go on a crash diet, for me, it was usually a time period in which I hadn't been taking care of myself. And while I wasn't taking care of myself, I was avoiding the scale because of course to me that means, oh, I must be gaining weight rapidly. And then if I continued in that pattern, I would assume that, you know, my body was just going out of bounds. And frankly, all I needed to do was step on a scale to to remind myself that, hey, you know what? Eating disorders aren't just about your body. They're about your brain, your psychology and your stress level and Um, And so, yeah, the scale can calm me down when I realize, oh, hey, it's it's normal to go up and down a little bit. And if my weight is shifting uh, more than a little bit, then it's important to understand what's going on in my life. Mm -hmm.
0: Okay. Can we talk about – the relationship that you have with your um, mother-in-law? Because I think I think that's <laughs> sure. really fat- fascinating. Like, I honestly think that is a pretty fascinating thing that a lot of us can um, apply to our own lives. So explain y'all's relationship and some
1: of the stuff that you covered in the book. Okay, sure. So, um, you know, not to just repeat, you know, really overplayed um stereotypes about mother-in-laws, but I do have a challenging relationship with my mother-in-law. Um, we're very similar in certain ways. We have very strong personalities. We're not afraid to speak up. Um, we're not afraid to take charge. Um, and we can be goofy. These are things I love about her. Um, but in certain areas, um, particularly as it um, in relation to uh, beauty standards and beauty culture, we're really kind of on opposite sides of the spectrum, at least at this point in my life and this point in her life. So, whereas I'm a, you know, a feminist um, sociologist, really dedicated to challenging beauty standards, um, challenging my own relationship to them, uh, my mother-in-law has, um, really does, um, and is open, very open about this, cares very much about her appearance, and she feels um, really no guilt about um, enhancing her appearance, whether it's through dieting, or plastic surgery, or makeup, um, or clothes. And what's interesting is we actually relate to each other um, in terms of, like, our love for clothes. But uh, when we first met, and I didn't know her as well, and all I knew was that I thought her son was the guy I was going to marry. I, I cared so deeply about what she was going to think about me. And um, knowing how dedicated she was to uh, maintaining her appearance, it was really, really challenging for me to worry um First, worry that she wouldn't think I was, um, you know, pretty enough for her son. Um, and second, just that, you know, I was, it was a complicated thing. I wanted her to like me. And yet I was very mixed about my thoughts about, you know, the, you know, I'm putting this in scare quotes, but like the kind of women who would, you know, get a lot of plastic surgery. Um, I thought there was no way we could ever get along, frankly. Mm-hmm.
0: So there was a moment that you just had this breakdown when you came to terms with the fact that you were a little bit, I think the right word would be, like, jealous that she didn't care what people thought about her and that she could get boob jobs and she could look this way and plastic surgery. Is that correct? And, like, you just had to come to terms with this and heal your outlook on her?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I had some assumptions that, Um, you know, women who spend that much money or, you know, in some, in some ways really risk their health by, you know, going under the knife. Um, and you know, they, I had these ideas that they did it because they weren't critical of beauty standards and they did it because they were dependent, their entire self-esteem was dependent on, you know, what men would think about them, um, that there were better ways to spend the money and so on. Um. And at the end of the day, what was interesting to find out is is that my mother-in-law, um, when I finally just talked to her about it, because it, she's actually very open about it, and, you know, some women will have plastic surgery and deny it, um, oh, I just got a lot of sleep last night. But she, you know, was very open about it. And um, when I talked to her about it, um, she let me know a few things. One of them was that this is something that she did for herself and I didn't fully understand that until I wrapped my head around the fact that no one in her life was telling her um, that she needed to have plastic surgery, um, including her husband, that this was something that she felt that she was doing um, on her own for herself and also... um, That she felt very strongly that people should know, and you know, she even said, you know, I don't think it's fair for me to go get plastic surgery and show up at a party with all my friends, and everyone knows something is I've done, had something done, and no one knows how to talk about it. Um, So those things were interesting to be like, wait a second, um, these ideas I had about plastic surgery that women do it without thought, and and that it's like cheating the system because they'll look great, and then everyone else thinks they have to live up to it, not knowing that it's plastic surgery. She really challenged those assumptions I had. Um, but the final piece was finding out that the way she was raised by her own mother really shaped the way she viewed her body. Um, and in this case, her mother was very critical, really withheld affection in some ways, um, and you know, told told my mother-in-law when she was a little girl that she was too skinny and nothing looked good on her. Um, And, and so that history this imagining my mother-in-law, who to me was very intimidating as a little girl being told over and over again that she wasn't pretty. um, It made me realize that I'm not, there aren't two sides. It's really the same culture that affects us all. Um, and having women um, be open about their experiences is really where we find so many similarities. Um, and you know, this is just an interesting tidbit: is on my mother, my mother-in-law, Sherry. Um, her mother um, passed away in the um, within the last year of cancer, and it was literally on her deathbed um, that she told sherry that she was beautiful um on her deathbed and so my mother-in-law sherry just i mean literally the first time she could ever remember being told that um you know had to say goodbye to her mother um who was who was pat in you know on her deathbed as i mentioned but had still did have that moment that ended up being so meaningful to her um and that was a really beautiful story to hear her tell
0: Wow. That is so powerful. And like, I'm, I'm, I feel so grateful that happened that she at least got to hear that. Um, me too.
1: And it was, you know, she, she just cried all, she cries all over again every time she tells that part of the story, because it was such a fundamental shaping relationship for her, um, experience of, you know, having a body. Right.
0: Mm -hmm. Do you have any tips or, um, suggestions for people that look at other people so it might not be their uh, mother-in-law but say someone is on social media and they see someone that has abs and they're super lean and they want that and but they also don't want that because they're trying to go in a different direction of um, body positivity and accepting the way their body is now but they look at this and they're just conflicted and they're angry and they're they want what that person (laughs) has but they also want to make a new movement what kind of tips do you have for those people? Is it just um, being firm in your current beliefs and the direction you're headed and knowing that it is going to a healthier place? Or is it asking this person the why and digging mm-hmm. deeper into why they are the way they are? What What do you recommend?
1: <laughs> That's a complicated, complicated question. And I think the answer has to be different depending on the person and where they are in their own journey of self-acceptance or mm-hmm. um, really figuring out what what feels authentic or like the right healthy path for them. So the quick answer is that, um, if it's, if it's a form of media, whether it's Instagram or the Victoria's secret show, um, I tell everyone assume that every single thing you see on a screen or printed, et cetera, is in some way Photoshopped or at the very least filtered. Mm -hmm. Um, and that kind of helps, me and others, I hope, remind themselves that these images are constructed, and that even if you know we think we're looking at an everyday person, um, they're, they can take 150 pictures of themselves, and they choose which you know two or three to actually po- uh, post online. Likewise, all these um, magazine ads and images that we are comfortable saying they're all photoshopped, but sometimes we don't appreciate just how much. So, basically, anytime you see something in a form of media, it constructed and edited, and that you know, should give us some direction in saying, hey, just don't compare yourself to what's in the media, especially when we don't know what happened to go into that look. Um, that said, I think it's really important to spend more time um, looking around and really appreciating the diversity of bodies around us, body types, fashion, um, personal style, etc., that we see in our everyday lives. And when we actually we see real human beings and interact with them and get a sense of what their lives are like, um, that's when we can have a healthier understanding of the fact that a lot of the most beautiful people we know um, perhaps spend a huge amount of time maintaining their looks. Um, there might be some exceptions to that, and you know, you know, good for them, that's great. But it's the real people in our lives that can get, shape um, a healthy understanding of the variety. Of bodies and looks um, and lifestyles that go into those looks. Mm -hmm. That brings up
0: a really good point because when I think about my own usage of Instagram that's a big part of you know my business is helping people to um, purge from social media accounts that aren't healthy for them to look at to know that they are filtered or they are photoshopped but when I think about it even I still do that like I still have my favorite filters and I have my go-to filters and I wonder if maybe to some degree I'm part of the problem as well. I don't post pictures of my body. I post pictures of things and mm-hmm. what I'm doing, but still I'm using them. So I wonder if that in itself is still something that I should hold back from. Because I I, mean, I know like pretty pictures equals more followers, you know, more people like being exposed to your brand. So I don't want to be a part of the problem. I want to be the solution. But I also want to get the right people on my page and to my stuff and my podcast, if that makes sense.
1: I totally get that. And especially, you know, as someone else who has at times been like marketing myself or my book, um, it can be difficult to think, hey, you know, I know that my words and my writing are 100% what I stand for. But you know, what if?" What if simply by, you know, putting on a little bit more makeup, more people will be willing to listen to me? I think those are really common um, questions that um, women in the body image world ask themselves. And it's, we're not stupid to ask ourselves these questions. Like we we're critical of this world because we know how, how high stakes it is. And I think one thing that I find interesting, and I can say again, like my mother-in-law is kind of a role model for me in this way is that it's the most powerful thing can be just to take the, you know, take the curtain away um, and see that, you know, the all powerful Oz is actually just some dude pulling cranks. Um, And so, you know, just a simple thing like putting um, under your Instagram, putting a naming, what filter you used. Right. So it's like you see the image, but you give credit to the fact that it's a little bit enhanced I think those things can be really healthy because they remind people of what they do themselves and makes them think, oh, hey, you know, actually, simply by saying, you know, (laughs) perfect skin by Instagram filter number five um, can really acknowledge the constructedness of these images while also allowing you and me and other people in the body image world to not be martyrs for our own cause, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great
0: point. Um okay so another thing that I wanted to touch on before this interview wraps up. Oh my gosh, I could talk to you all day long. <laughs> but um I do another have, one sometime. Yeah, I will have to have you on again. That is a fact. Definitely. But um I want to know about your relationship with you and your husband towards the end of the book. You were talking about not being with mirrors for so long. Your your romance was dwindling a little bit. And it ah, was yes. it <laughs> was just like I don't know what was the source of it? Was the source of just not having the mirror, so not having the motivation to artfully decorate your face, which makes you feel more beautiful? Or was it you were just tired? What was the source of that?
1: Well, you know, I'm a social scientist, and I believe in the scientific method. So I mean, to say that, um, you know, any changes in my own feelings of desire or enjoyment, um, of you know, the more sexual side of my life, um, to say that it, was all the mirrors project um is just impossible to um to claim and know and is the truth. But I will say is that um at a certain point when I had given up mirrors for long enough, I was really feeling everything I thought I would feel in a good way, where I just felt more engaged in the rest of my life. I spent some time getting ready in the morning, but it was more about, hey, what do I feel like wearing today instead of what would look good? Um and I had this great comfort in my body. Um, and yet, you know, I've spent most of my life, my, you know, ever since puberty, feeling as though my sexuality um, and and getting, you know, in the mood or being sexy um, is at least in some ways wrapped up in like primping and um, spending time. Picking out, you know, whether it's, a, you know, what I think of as a sexy dress or sexy lingerie. And so, you know, whether good or bad, at this point in my life, I still have, you know, 20 years of thinking um, that, that sex and, um, you know, just sexuality has to do with some aspects of appearance and managing it. And what's interesting is um, I started to read a bit more about the. Mirrors and how they've been discussed culturally, um, and I started to see excerpts of how um, you know I think it was it was my advisor in um, grad school who said, well, there's portions of you know Jewish heritage where you can um, read about how when the Jews were enslaved and they were worked too hard to um, to procreate and the Jewish race was possibly at risk that the women um, looked at themselves in mirrors. And um, and basically were able to kind of seduce the men into continuing the Jewish race. And I'm probably botching that story in some ways. But realizing that throughout history, mirrors again, it's not that they themselves are evil. It's how you use them. And so for someone to look in a mirror and get in touch with what they look like and what they feel like and to decide, hey, you know what? I'm feeling pretty good. I think I'm feeling sexy. That can be something um, that can be pleasurable and it can be healthy. And it's something that I was able to get back in touch with um, a little bit more when the, when I was looking at mirrors again. But it was only because I had taken time away from them that I could decide which parts um, of having uh, mirrors in my life I wanted to bring back and which ones I could do away with.
0: Mm-hmm. And that seems like a really healthy tool, a way to use a mirror for the good, you know.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a language I use in my book that I find really powerful is that, um, you know, for a lot of us, the time we spend in front of the mirror is about um, covering up flaws, is about thinking if I don't spend this time, um, I'm going to look ugly or um, people are going to think bad things about me. Um, But really a lot of the things that we do in front of a mirror, whether it's washing our face or putting on lotion or putting on some makeup, if we just shift our mindset a bit and start asking ourselves which of these um, seeming routines of beauty can actually start to feel like rituals of self-care that we do for ourselves um, rather than out of fear of how others will view us, that kind of uh, mindset and different framing of beauty practices can be a really good place to kind of check yourself at any point in time. And for me, um, now I do ask myself, am I putting on this makeup because I feel some pleasure out of it and I'm feeling creative and good about myself, or am I doing this because all I can think about is the zit I woke up with? Um, And this is just something to think about um, and just thinking about it and being more conscious of, um, you know, whether what we're doing is a habit or a self-care ritual, um, can really help us along that path of feeling, um, having a healthy relationship with our bodies.
0: Yes, that's beautiful. So I think that is an excellent place to wrap up. I do have a, um, quick fire round of questions I'm going to ask you, but before we get to that, um, do you have anything else that you would like to share with my audience?
1: Mm, Not really. Um, I just, you know, if anyone is interested in more of my thoughts on these issues, please find my website. It's um, kirstengries.com. I'm sure you'll spell it out somewhere on your website. So, you know, reach out if you're interested in more, more conversation.
0: Yes, I will have all of your links and I will have a link to your book on uh, MaddieMoon.com slash MBM54. So you can go there and you can get the book because the book is honestly, okay, so I Did a shout out like on my social media when I was reading your book and I was like this is the best book ever and then a few of my a few of my clients got it and then some of my friends got it and we have this like big old fan club going on because we are obsessed with the book. I'm not even kidding like I have had some of my clients send me questions and ask you because they're in some of them I did ask in our interview but. I just think what you did was really powerful and it made me think a lot because I don't know if I would do something quite like that, but that is what changes the world. That is, the, These kind of actions and stories are what makes people think and really question the way they live and their motives behind things and how they can make their own lives better and their own body image better. So I just want to say thank you for what you've done and for writing a book about it and for coming on my show to share with everyone.
1: Well, you're very welcome, and thank you for those kind words. It's really, um, it's really meaningful to hear that the story resonated with people.
0: Yes, certainly. So the the questions I'm gonna ask you, are you ready for one? There's only a few.
1: I, I, think so. <laughs> I think <laughs> so. I think it'll be good. I,
0: these are like quick answers. Yes. Yes. Okay. There'll be they'll be easy. There are questions that you probably already have the answers to. <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So number one, if you were gonna have a last meal, what would your meal be? Thanksgiving. Oh yes. Okay. Current book that you're loving
1: or reading. It's called Dietland by Saray Walker, and it's amazing.
0: Okay, so I'm pretty sure that was my last guest. She recommended she was reading the same one. It's um Isabel Fox and Duke was just talking about that book and said it was amazing. So I've got to get yeah, it now.
1: Isabel's great. I mean the thing I love about the book is that it it's like Fight Club crossed with like the with um the beauty myth. It's so cool. <laughs> okay.
0: I'm going to get that next. All right.
1: Um, what is your go-to fruit? My go-to fruit. Oh, that's tricky. Depends on the season. Um, bananas are the easiest all year round, but I'm a re- I am love cherries in the summer. Okay, cool. Um, go-to band or artist? Oh, that's horrible. I'm like, I'm like I I'd still be listening to Ace of Ace of Base if I didn't have Pandora. So, um let me see. Pandora station right now is the Fall Out Boy Pandora station if that's an answer.
0: <laughs> okay, that was my first concert I ever went to. I was obsessed with Fall Out Boy. There's no judgment there. Fall Out Boy is no amazing. Work.
1: That's great. That's awesome.
0: Um animal, favorite
1: animal. My cats. Color. Green. City. San Francisco.
0: And last but not least, your favorite way to de-stress at the end of a long day.
1: Oh, um probably a glass of wine and a good um like crime drama, preferably with a strong female lead. Oh, I love it. Who's your favorite crime drama author? Oh, that's really hard. Um so in terms of books or um or TV shows. Oh, TV shows. Okay, TV shows, I've been really um, into, actually, this, uh, it's a Danish show, um, and it's called uh, Dicte, D-I-C-T-E, and it follows um, a woman who's, like, a crime reporter who always gets entangled in these, like, crazy crime mysteries. So that's one of them. Um, And, of course, there's SVU, Olivia Benson, will always be in my heart.
0: (laughs) Okay, awesome. Those are great. Um, Thank you again so much for coming on to the podcast. I can't wait to have this episode up and running, and it's been such a blast. We'll have you again. Sounds
1: great. Good talking to you.